0: Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions.
1: When I look back at the work I did out in Seattle, I got a lot of recognition. I got a lot of pats on the back. I got a lot of money. But I could literally summarize all of my work on a one sentence in a ruled line sheet of paper. It just, to me, wasn't very significant or life changing. But the work I've done with fostering is on a completely different level. I got no real uh, accolades. Certainly we get no money. We get no real praise, although people will say you've done a great job and, you know, oh, you're changing these kids' lives and people that don't really get it. But by far, I will look back on it and say, it was one of the great achievements of my life. No question.
0: Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years?
1: We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses.
0: So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm ACASA, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way ACASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze, by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA.
2: Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Mary Rathbone. And because of her love for adventure, she would travel around the world helping youth as a missionary. Then because of her interest in tech, got jobs at Expedia and Microsoft that had intense pressure and required a lot of focus. But she says the most difficult job she's ever had and the most rewarding was being a foster parent. Here's Mary.
0: Good morning. I'm here with Mary Rathbone. Hey, Mary. Hi.
2: Hey, how are you?
0: Good, good. Um, So tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from, how you were raised.
1: Um, Well, I'm from Georgia, originally. I was born in uh, Florida, but only because my dad was in residency there at the University of um, Florida and um, grew up here, have a strong uh, Christian family, mom and dad. Um, Mom stayed home once I was born. She was a teacher to help put my dad through medical school, but then she stayed home to look after us have two sisters, one a few years older, and the third was a surprise. She came quite a bit later. But we're a close family, and we all live 10 minutes from each other now.
0: Wow, you're all that close Oh, still. Yes. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you've also lived all over the world, right?
1: I have, yeah. I grew up uh, here in Athens and loved it, but my dream was always to move away. <laughs> so I did. I moved to Chicago for college, and then I moved to Switzerland for grad school, and then lived in New York, uh, Atlanta, Augusta. Uh, and then um, my dad said to me, my, my dream had always been to open my own bed and breakfast inn because of some vacations we had taken over to the Alps and uh, fell in love with the whole concept of family running a, an inn. And he said, you will never afford your bed and breakfast in the hospitality industry, which is where I was working, kind of in hotels and BBs. He said, you need to explore your interest for technology, and get a job in tech. So I went back to school <laughs> and moved out to Seattle, packed up everything I owned, moved out to Seattle, went back to school. And because I couldn't afford to officially go back to school, I became a teacher's assistant to learn programming and uh, different project management, program management classes. And within about six months was hired on at a company and um, was a business systems analyst. And then I got hired on at Microsoft and I worked there for five years and then moved to Expedia with a lot of the other Microsoft employees and worked there for five years. So wow, was you've fun.
0: Wow. You've had a lot of really different experiences.
1: I have. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a great life.
0: Right. And you're also a foster parent. And you said to me that actually dealing with all the people and the phone calls and all the all the different machinations and the moving parts has been more difficult as a foster mom than it ever was in your business life, right?
1: Yes, I do by far consider fostering to be the most difficult profession I have ever uh, encountered. I've been a manager in some of the top Four Seasons hotels in Chicago and New York, and I've been (laughs) a a group program manager and a, a senior director at Expedia and fostering it is unbelievably difficult in almost every aspect, but it is a complete and utter blessing and 100% worth it. So you have to balance those two things together, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. And you and your husband have, have been doing it for about five years, so how, how did you come on to it? What, what made you think well, about it? Well, I have to and-
1: go back a little bit. So when I was growing up, um, my parents sent me on a bunch of missions trips as a child. And I got to do some really amazing things and experience a lot of different cultures. And when I did that, I always kind of made myself the promise that if I ever had a chance to go and lead a team, I would do it. And so when my life sort of fell apart uh, out in Seattle, uh, meaning my husband decided he no longer uh, loved me anymore and wanted to be with all the other women in Seattle, um, Uh I decided to move back home. And uh, after sending out 155 resumes, and my resume, I have to say, is a phenomenal resume, I got one call back for the wrong position at Google. And I said, you're wasting my time and I'm wasting yours. So I decided to pray, okay, God, what is it that you have for me? And immediately he put in my head, do you remember when you were a teenager, you said if you could ever go back and leave one of these teams, well, that's what I want you to do. So I called up this mission's organization and I said, I know the summer is fixing to start. Do you happen to have any teams that need a leader to take these teenagers around the world to do these service projects? And they said, oh, we're desperate for leaders. We have 17 teenagers going to Ecuador and they have one teenager who's 19 who's never led before as their leader. And I was like 30-something at the time. So I said, okay, I'm coming. So I went down to Merritt Island, Florida, attended a two-week, really strenuous, army-like boot camp with these teenagers, about 500 of them. And then I took 17 from there to Ecuador. And I really had no clue. I had not been around teenagers since I was a teenager. I had no <laughs> idea and the 17 of them, wow. Yeah, I had no idea the issues they were having. Um, we had, I think, three active homosexuals on our team. We had at least four cutters that cut themselves for pain issues. Yeah. We had on this team, I think, at least two that I can think of at the top of my head possibly three foster children that had horrific experiences and shared them with me nightly. Um, it diverted all of my attention from my life falling apart in Seattle and. Oh, woe is me, that my husband doesn't love me anymore, too. I've got to deal with these kids. I've got to help them get through the summer. I've got to survive the summer. And um, we stayed up late every night, and they would tell me these horror stories about being in foster care. And I made another promise that if ever I could do something to help foster kids, I would do it. Well, the following summer, I went to Wales and Iceland. Um, We worked at a homeless prevention kind of a place, which focused on keeping vulnerable families together before they entered care. And I worked with a bunch of families. And it was there that I met my now husband, Alan, and we decided that we would get married. And so I moved to England. Nine months later, we were married and we worked for the same charity for two years. And I was in charge of a house with about 12 girls, all teenagers, some of which were runaways, trying to train them to be able to get the best jobs possible and to do you know, what they needed to do. So we did that. And then we felt God was calling us to go to another country. We decided we wanted to go to Germany. Unbeknownst to us, I was five months pregnant with my daughter. And so we went ahead and we moved. And we had Chloe in Germany, but I was 40 when we had her. And we had real trouble getting pregnant. We prayed, and we went to fertility, and we just could not seem to get it going. And then I found out I was pregnant the day after we gave away our house in England. So we moved to Germany, and I had Chloe, and we said, Well, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to have another child. Maybe we should consider adopting And we went to the German authorities and they said, I'm sorry, you're too old to adopt a German child. Uh, But you can move home and you can adopt from there and then move back. So this thing came into my head again that said, you remember that thing you said about trying to help foster kids? Maybe this is what you need to do. So we moved back home to the States in 2016. And that kind of began our foster care journey. They didn't have enough resources to have us go straight for adoption. They said, you're going to need to foster first. And if it works out, great. You know, we'll put you as fostering to adopt, but really it's just fostering. And you'll be the first to be given priority if it goes to termination of rights.
0: I wonder why that was, because there's so many kids that need to be adopted. But I guess you're just talking about in your region then.
1: Well, there's of course the nationwide group of kids that already have had their rights terminated. But the tendency for most agencies is to say, you have a young daughter, you're coming home, you don't know the history of these kids. Most of them have had their rights terminated, and their foster parents have said, no, we will not adopt them, because they are the most troubled or they have the most difficult circumstances or there are lots of issues surrounding them. We recommend that you go for a child younger than your daughter and see whether you can get to know and bond with a child before agreeing to adoption. Because when you agree to adoption from one of the children that is waiting, they do, I think, give you a six-month waiting period Once that child can live with you and whatnot, before you have to officially say yay or nay. But they advised us that fostering was the best way to go about what we wanted to do. So we were very, very, very naive because our first placement was a sibling set of four.
0: Wow, your first placement. Mm -hmm. Four kids.
1: Yeah, the first they gave us, they said, we have three girls, that we need you to take, and I said, okay. So we bought everything, we got everything set up, we were super excited, and they called back and they said, you know, they were in an emergency placement for the weekend, and I'm sorry to say the emergency placement decided to keep them. But we have this sibling group of four, if you're interested. (laughs) So I called my dad and I said, "Um, the three girls are gone, now they have four, three boys and a girl. And he said, I'd take them because tomorrow I might be five. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: Okay, so how old were they when they came into your home?
1: The first time they came to us, they were six, four, three, and one. Wow. And our daughter was six as well. So we had six, six, four, three, one.
0: Yeah, and then you said that you were naive about. Um, also about their mom, so tell me about that.
1: Yeah, well I met their mom at their first visitation and just seeing the children run up to her, knock her down with hugs and kisses and her hugging and kissing them back, I just didn't think there was any way possible I could take these children away from her. So I kind of made it my mission to get her back on her feet and get her kids back to her and I worked like a crazy person to make that happen. What I did not know, because <laughs> I was extremely naive about everything dealing with drugs and everything dealing with professional liars, um, which unfortunately is what most biological parents have been forced to become, is that there were um, requirements placed on mothers that were addicted to drugs for drug testing, and I did not know that there were cleaners that they could drink to clean their system. And I did not know that there were shampoos that they could take to, to fool the hair follicle test. I think a mistake that DFACS made, the Department of Family and Child Services, was they gave always advanced notice of when these drug tests were going to be. So she was always prepared with doing whatever she needed to do. And she lied to me. Gracious, I can't even count the number of lies. But I still spent hundreds of hours with her that first year trying to get them reconciled with the thought that what she was telling me was true, with the thought that she was off the drugs, with the thought that she was doing all the things that's being required of her. So I pushed defects, I pushed the lawyers, and I pushed the judge to reconcile them. And within eight months, they were. I came to find out because we had built such a close relationship with not only she, but her dad and her mom and her sisters and her grandparents, everybody along the route, plus these kids, I came to find out that, no, it was not nearly as rosy as she had made it out to be. She had never gotten off the drugs. She had lied about almost everything. And that was really devastating to me. After having had a first husband that did nothing but lie to me, and then this, uh, that was really hard.
0: Yeah, and but you also... You really wanted her to have her kids. You worked so hard for her to be able to have those kids. There's, I don't think that's normally part of being a foster mom. I mean, I, that's an unusual role, isn't it, that, that you undertook? Um,
1: I came to find out that it, that it is. A lot of people get into fostering um, because they want to adopt a child, That's why you find that all the babies are snatched up immediately because they want a baby. They couldn't have a baby of their own, so they go to fostering to find that baby, raise them the way they want to, and adopt them. There are a considerable amount of parents now than there were, I guess, before that are now looking at fostering as a ministry. Ministry to the kids. We do it because God loved us, God adopted us, therefore we should try to love and take care of these kids. More and more people are doing that way. But in the majority of people's minds is the idea that maybe one day we can adopt these kids. It's very few that just get into fostering for fostering. They Mm -hmm. don't want to adopt, they're just looking after kids, they're going to just foster for forever. Very, very few. I can't tell you an exact percentage, but I know one family and that family is in England that did that. Everybody else I knew of was trying to hope, you know, for some sort of adoption. Therefore, the concept that Defacts pushes out is this is a partnership parenting between the foster parents us and the biological parents. Is a nice thing to say, but it's not actually too much of reality. They try They want to not have it on their conscience that they didn't try to reach out and help the bio parents. But there's a general stigmatism, I guess, against bio parents, against the lifestyles chosen, against the way they were brought up, against the trauma that they inflicted, the neglect that the kids experienced, that makes the foster parents, I think, just be a bit biased towards it's best that they, the kids be looked after and cared for. What was the turning point for me in a lot of respects a few years ago was I went to a conference by a Christian organization and they had a panel of adult adoptees on the panel. And the last question they asked them was about how did you feel about being adopted? And they said, please don't misinterpret us. Adoption was the worst days of our lives, all of us. And they were doctors and lawyers, and they were successful teachers. And I thought, you're telling this to a group of foster parents here for a conference to say, all of this is really for nothing because they don't really want it to be adopted. These kids want to go home, no matter the neglect, no matter the abuse, no matter what it is, no matter how much money you have, no matter what great things and what... Now, that was... Uh, A shock to my system, but I knew it in my heart already. I knew it from all the kids that I had been with. There are, of course, a few exceptions, but I would say very few. The kids want to go back home to what they know and what they love, even if they don't feel loved by that parent. But my kids did feel loved. They just knew that mama had a lot of problems, mm-hmm. so.
0: And they ended up coming back to you, right?
1: They did. So we had a bunch of kids in between them leaving us and coming back again. But we had made a commitment to this mom and to her kids, despite all the lies and despite all the things that we found out about, that we were going to stay in touch and be a part of their lives for forever. So we were at every birthday party. I was the emergency contact for every school. We were at Christmas together. We just... They came over for summer parties. We were together for the three years. Even if we had other foster kids in our home, we still saw these kids. And um, it became, in the end, I have to stay with these kids because I'm the only one that has eyes on them. The mom kept moving counties. The DFACS uh, workers would get to know mom and realize, oh, there's real problems here, and then she would move. And then Mm -hmm. they'd reassign a new DFACS worker from a new county, and at first she'd be like, "Oh, she's doing great, and you know we can really work with her, and she's being responsive." And then I'd say, "Well, just wait." And sure enough, six months later would go by. Oh, she's not returning our calls. We can't. The kids are not in school. They've not seen a doctor. Da 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 da. And then she'd move. So she was in eight counties in four years, which makes it very very difficult for DFACS to take the kids. In the end, three plus years later, it was me that was calling defects and saying. You've got to get these kids back into care. And they screened me out. They did not think what I was saying was, uh, I guess, either accurate or worthy enough. But I was the squeaky wheel, and I would not let it go. And so I kept calling and calling and calling and talking to different supervisors. And finally, in February of last year, I said, I can't do it anymore. She had uh, gotten with another man whose criminal history was longer than my arm. He was on drugs. She was so heavily on heroin and everything imaginable. The kids had lice, so extensive that it was just literally eating them to death. They didn't have food. They didn't have anything, the basic needs that they needed. Uh, They were homeless. They had been evicted three times in two years. It was just, it could not have gotten any worse. And I said, I can't do it anymore. No one is listening to me. I don't know what else to do here. We even called the police department. (laughs) And so I backed away for three months and did not have any contact with the children or with her and just backed away. And about this time last year, I got a frantic call from the bio mom's sister Miss Mary, Miss Mary, they've taken the kids. They've taken the kids. And I said, wait, slow down. What's happened? She said, a judge ordered it. They went to court today. They thought it was for one reason. And he took them. He took them away. So I said, let me find out what's happening and I'll call you back. So sure enough, I called our uh, agency and they said, yep, just came across the desk. They're back in care. Do you want them? And I said, yes, bring them to me. And so they did. And we... Uh, anticipated just having them for the weekend <laughs> because we already had two kids and they were going to leave us within about the next 60 days for whatever reasons, but we felt full. And so we were just going to have them for the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, my husband said, we can't let them go. We have to keep them. And so we did and they've been with us for a year and we anticipate at least another six months before they'll be able to go back to mom. And
0: and you love these kids, right?
1: I do. I do. I'm kind of there. um, I don't know. I I guess I'm, because of my time with these missions groups where we were serving down in the military-style boot camp, the way I operate is pretty no-nonsense military-like structure, heavy structure, heavy time schedule, whatnot, because it's the only way I know how to manage five kids under 11, and they love it. I mean, they, it. Yeah. they just love it. Yeah. They eat it up. I think I'm just the worst foster parent in the world, but they love it. They love the structure they've never had. They love being in the same school. They love having to do homework and having to memorize things, you know. Um. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're responding to the consistency. I think so. Yeah. And they've, they've never had it makes them feel safe right
1: yes i think that's right
0: and how about how about your bio daughter How do, how is she handling all this
1: well precious child she was born in germany and um she always thought why can't you just go to the store and buy me a sister she just really did not <laughs> understand the concept of why can you not have another baby well why can't you just go and get one there's so many that are unwanted i don't understand this and So as she grew older, we kind of explained to her, okay, this is what we're going to try to do. She was 150% on board. She was the best big sister imaginable. So merciful, so kind, really loved them, every single one of them. And yet it was difficult for her when they had to go home or they had to move or, you know, that was hard for her. But since she was a missionary kid and she'd lived all over and change was kind of normal... It didn't, I think, break her. It just made her a bit stronger. So she loves these kids. They will always be considered her siblings. Um, she's loved all the other kids we've had.
0: Yeah, how many, how many kids overall have you fostered?
1: So we have had um, 10 kids total, four of them twice.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. And you
1: have, For different time lengths.
0: Right, and, y- and you have five in the house now. Correct, right. and- yeah.
1: Including our daughter, yes. Yeah,
0: including your daughter. And so you you describe yourself as a hopeful pessimist. What does that mean?
1: That means I'm not naive anymore. I've been lied to by enough people to know that trust is very rare and very hard to come by. But I see glimmers of hope, for example, in this mom, in the fact that she went to an actual rehab inpatient facility where she's required to get randomly drug tested multiple times a week. She had to attend eight meetings a week. She had to get work. She had to do all the various aspects of counseling and therapy with her case plan. And I'm hopeful that this time around it's both one genuine and two, she can stick with it long enough to get the kids back. But I have been around her for now almost five years. So I know her spending habits. I know her saving habits. I know her work habits and evictions. I know all of that. So I can be pessimistic in the fact that I know more about this case and this family than everybody on the case combined. But I can be hopeful because one, God gives us hope. Two, because I see a genuine love between her and these children. And three, because she's ticked off all the boxes that defects has told her to tick off. So, yeah, hopeful pessimist.
0: Right, a hopeful pessimist, right. And you also want to be a fixer. So what does that mean?
1: Well, ever since I was young, I always questioned everything. Why is this like this? Why is this, you know, ever since I was young? And I'm always very um, outspoken. And so I was not afraid to ask tough questions that everyone else was afraid to ask. My teachers applauded it. They thought, oh, this is wonderful. You ask all the questions that no one else wants to ask. As you get older, people get more offended. <laughs> well, why do we do it this way? You know, wh- wh- this makes no sense. Why is all of the paperwork for a foster parent on hard copy? Why is this not all digital? Why do you not have a database that tracks these parents across counties? Why are we not? D- and I raised about 10,000 questions in the last, you know, five years that nobody was prepared to answer and certainly nobody wanted to deal with. Um, And so I watched a a film the other day about the uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ginsburg. And Mm -hmm. I I think it is fascinating because, you know, she was trying to, to deal with gender equality. And if you've seen that film, she says, you know, basically, I'm going after this one case with this one man that was treated unfairly because of his sex. And once we set this one in motion and win this one, that'll set the precedent for all the other laws that need to be changed. And I think in foster care, if you look at it as a whole, you will quickly get overwhelmed, discouraged, and frustrated. There is no way to look at it in a whole and say, this is how we need to fix it. But if you can take all the little processes and all the things that they are there and knock one of them off at a time, And then take it and share it with every other county, because every county does everything differently. (laughs) So... If you can say, okay, for this county, this is the new process we have, and your county supervisor has to buy in on this, and then we're taking it to the state, and then we're going nationwide with this, and you can tick that one off and say, this one that caused so much headache and so much problems for so many people is now fixed to this, and here it is, and everybody does this. Then we go to the next one. Well, there are hundreds of those things that need to be addressed. I have shouted loudly about quite a few. I have driven some caseworkers crazy about quite a few, but I know that I'm right. And I know that if just the right person listens to what I'm saying and they have the time to fix it and they're willing to stick with it until it's done, that it will get in effect, it will make a difference, and it will have an impact on the people that they claim to be their most valuable resource. And I would say that foster parents are by far the number one resource that they have for foster kids. And number two is the caseworkers. So we need more foster parents and we need more caseworkers. The things that foster parents and caseworkers have to go through need to be addressed and adjusted to great lengths. Because then the people that are in the process will stop quitting the caseworkers will stop quitting. In fact, they'll like their jobs because they see that things are easier for them. They're not just a major migraine. And they would tell other people, yes, you should get in this field because they fixed all these things that were broken. And the same thing for foster parents. Yes, you know, they will support you. They will encourage you. You should become a foster parent. Unfortunately, the opposite is happening right now. Foster parents are discouraging others because they're saying, well, this is my experience. (laughs) And so watch out for this if you get into this. Uh, It's hard enough to become a foster parent just with the problems of the kids. If you have to deal with all kinds of disorganization and lack of support and downright being talked down to and discouraged and really uh, go through a lot, then... I don't think many people are going to come into this field, and it is desperately needed.
0: Yeah, I know there's a huge burnout for caseworkers and, and also for foster parents because yes. not only is it so difficult, but it's also heartbreaking, and you, you feel like you're going around in circles. And even if you want to do good, it's, it's hard to actually execute that, right? That's right. So, what are the different roles in caregiving that you and your husband play? How do, you, how do you how do you balance things in the house?
1: Sure. Well, um the Department of Family and Child Services considers me the, to be the primary caregiver and Alan the secondary caregiver because I don't work outside the home and because he does. He has his own business. So, he helps where he can, um at night maybe putting the kids to bed or on the weekends taking them fishing or biking or helping out, giving me a break, but pretty much everything else from the Defects meetings to the monthly reports to the doctor and dentist visits to the uh, interventions at school or play dates, homework, feeding them, clothing them, all that's me.
0: Right. So it's just like a regular household.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a mom on steroids. Yeah. Right. The because mom on steroids. a regular mom has to do all the basic stuff, but then Defects has monthly meetings and required doctors and dentists and required counseling and all kinds of paperwork you have to fill out. It's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, another
0: thing that people don't really get that just a regular mom has things that she has to do for her kid, but then you have a kid who's in trouble or who's traumatized or who's medicated. And then it means many, many meetings, many appointments. Like it can be triple or quadruple or even 10 times the amount for a regular adjusted child.
1: Right. And they're someone else's kids. Yeah. So sometimes they're very hard to love or even like. Yeah. You know, and they're in your house and you're doing your best and they, sometimes they like you, sometimes they love you, sometimes they don't like you or love you at all. Um, and gosh, being a mom is difficult enough being one that's having to deal with someone that's screaming and biting and clawing and getting kicked out of school and, you know, having flashbacks and not able to sleep. And that's a whole different ball of wax.
0: Wow. Yeah. And then and then there's you just trying to take care of them, right? Right. Can you talk to me a little bit about generational foster care? What's your take on that?
1: Yes, I think that um, a lot of the kids in foster care today had parents who were also foster children and so we see a cycle of repetition with the system where parents that never had role models or parents that looked after them never learned what they needed to learn to become good parents and so therefore their kids end up in foster care and in the case of the family we are dealing with now the mom the bio mom uh, was a foster child herself. Her mother was, well, yeah, she was involved with prostitution for quite some time, was also on drugs, is now in rehab, getting off of heroin and some of the worst possible drugs. The kid's father, I believe, was also a foster child, although I, I would have to confirm that, but he has been in jail For the last year, he is on drugs. Um, Their mom's fiancé has been in court-ordered rehab for the last year because of criminal activity, and he was also on drugs. So these kids have been exposed to so many people in their lives that have had screwed-up childhoods and have had screwed-up adulthoods, and it's just passing from one generation to the next, unfortunately. And we are trying to stop that. And the two main ways that I see in all of my experience that can help that is one, building a foundation on something bigger than yourself, which in our case is on Christ. And two is education. I really believe that parents in the home have to focus their kids on getting the best possible education they can to break this cycle. Whether that be foster parents or bio parents, once they're reconciled, that has to be the primary emphasis uh, to get the best education they can possibly receive to get to college, to get the good jobs, to get out of the system of generational ick.
0: Yeah, it's actually generational trauma and foster care that's right. and incarceration and also generational substance abuse. abuse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And so you see the opportunity when you expose a kid to a healthy, happy family, that's, uh it, it almost becomes a role model for them to say, oh, the, actually, there's a different way to live.
1: Well, we hope so right we have not we have not fast forwarded 20 years into the future to see whether <laughs> they remember anything that we taught them i i keep telling my kids you know if you remember half the things that i've been trying to teach you i think you'll still be successful in life because i am on them like glue all day long every day about one thing or the other that they seemingly have never been exposed to knowing that they needed to do everything from brushing their teeth properly to going to the doctor regularly to getting vision checkups to doing their homework to not hitting their brothers or sisters it's just reteaching them everything that they should have learned in the first however many years of life they've been on the planet in the short window of time that we've been given them and you hope that they'll remember some of it will become kind of um uh, repetitive behavior that they'll go back home and they'll, you know, be able to put into place with their bio parents if they're reconciled or in their own lives when they have their own families. I know from having these kids twice that the mother would come back to me after reconciliation and say, oh, they say we have to pray before bed. And oh, they say we have to make our beds. And you know, <laughs> and so I w- my name was used a lot by the children when they went back to mom to say, mom, we have to do it this way. This is the best way to do it. Now, whether that sticks with them, we have no idea. We'll see down the road. But... For now, we're doing everything we can to give them the foundational skills that they have been sorely lacking, and that their parents were lacking and
0: grandparents.
1: Really, honestly, their parents need to start over again. Yeah, and their whole extended families. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they really need to start over again in a lot of cases because you wish that you could, you know, rewind their lives and say, "Oh, get that education. It's so important. Go to college." don't get pregnant at 19, don't start drugs when you're 15, don't do these things. We can say all of that, but now we have the evidence and we see just the ramifications of those decisions that are just bad. And so I'm hoping that these foster kids will look at their parents and say, They made all of these bad choices, which led to us being in foster care, which we don't want to be in foster care. Therefore, we're not going to make the same bad decisions in our own lives when we are parents, because remember how it felt. And, you know, no matter how much they get to do fun things and enjoy being with us and feel comfortable, they always want to go back to mom and dad. Always. Always. No matter if you take them to all the fun places and they do all the great things and they get to stay in school, one school for a whole year and they get clothes and they get all the food that they want. They always want to go back to mom and dad. So what can we do to instill in them something different that they've never seen or learned before and hope that maybe 50% sticks to help break this cycle of dependency and lack that they and their parents and their grandparents continued to suffer from.
0: So can you tell me about moms adopting moms?
1: So when the uh, kids first went back to mom, and I was so proud of myself (laughs) for this achievement. In fact, we were written up in the state of Georgia reconciliation, you know, monthly thing as being you know, whatever, foster parents of the month and all this great stuff. And I really thought, oh, you know, this is easy. If only we could just match up foster moms with bio moms and they could have this great mentor relationship, then everybody's problems would be solved. And this is how we solved the foster care crisis by partnering every foster care mom up with every, I mean, every foster mom with every bio mom and have them be the mom that they never really had because a lot of these bio parents were in foster care themselves and were neglected and traumatized and have all kinds of issues as a result of it. And so I thought, well, those of us that, (laughs) those of us that have had good childhoods and good upbringings and solid education and great experience working should come alongside these moms and help them with everything from cooking to budgeting to Everything they need in life, and everything will be great but um,
0: the fixer that 's you
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know it didn 't really work out that way, and my success story was actually a big disaster. Yes, they were reconciled, but it 's my fault they were reconciled, they were reconciled back to a lying drug addicted still mother uh, i don 't take full blame because defects and the judge signed off on it, but uh, I pushed it, I pushed hard and i 'm um, a very outspoken, I think, relatively intelligent person that can put a bunch of things together to make a convincing case. But it was a failure. Yes, I built a relationship with mom. And yes, she loves and respects me, even though I am no nonsense with her. I tell her 100% the truth, whether she likes it or not. I tell her as much my, my marvel at her successes as I do my doubts, that it will continue. Uh, to the chagrin of all the caseworkers. But uh, we have a, a very special relationship, she and I. She calls me mom. So I started Moms Adopting Moms with the theory that we could have success stories. I stopped pursuing Moms Adopting Moms when all the lies came out, and I realized if a mother refuses to get off drugs and refuses to remove herself from the environment and the relationships that caused her to get on drugs, there is relatively no hope. So my mom went right back into the same environment, into worse relationships than the one she had been before, and she never got off the drugs. So there was no real point in us being partners together to save all these other mamas that were addicts that were trying to, you know, there was no point. So I uh, put an end to that. But I still think it's a great concept. It's a great idea. If, yeah. <laughs> if you can get a mom to actually get off the drugs and get away from the environment which made her get on the drugs to begin with.
0: Do you think if it, it, it would you be able to do this work if it hadn't been for your faith?
1: 100% no question. <laughs> no.
0: No. Huh? None.
1: And in fact, I've always been a planner. Um, if you ask my the vice presidents at Microsoft that I worked for and all the people that were very much smarter than I was in all the great places I have worked, they would say that my greatest characteristic was being able to organize and do process and customer champion. I was one of the best. I could manage 50 things simultaneously. I could literally do my job back at Microsoft with all the people that worked for me, all the meetings and all the money that we managed going through that company. I could do that with my eyes closed and my hands tied behind my back much easier than I could even do one foster child. I have to pray every day for the strength to get through that day. I no longer plan much in advance at all. I mean, the Bible is very true when it says, don't worry about tomorrow Worry about only today, because today has enough trouble of its own, right? All that stuff will be dealt with. And so it kind of put things into perspective for me, my faith, that God is the only one that can help these parents and these kids. And He's looking after them even when I mess up, even when I'm not great, even when they're not with me, even when they've been reconciled back or whatever circumstance they're in, He's still watching over them. I have to pray that the wickedness in my own heart to where sometimes I just don't love these kids at all. I don't like them. We'll be transformed into love for them, genuine love, because if we can't be genuine, what can we be? Uh, But it has taught me more about myself and the human condition and the state of our society and our roles and responsibilities in that than anything else I've ever done. So it is a tremendous blessing, but it is an exhausting blessing and I am exhausted um, after five years of doing this. I'm exhausted, but my hat is off to anyone that can keep going.
0: So do you think you can keep going?
1: Uh, Well, our plan as of right now, and it is honestly all in God's hands, but I have already told defects in our agency that when these kids leave, close our house. I've taken breaks before a few months here or there, but we've pretty much been nonstop for five years, and I actually wanted to become a CASA, which I know you are, but uh, I have a great love for writing briefs. I have a great love for speaking in court. I have a fantastic relationship with the judge on this case right now. I think he is just terrific. And I love gathering evidence. I love getting to know all the people that are surrounding these kids. That's what a
0: CASA does, Um, you'd be a
1: great CASA. But the the thing I don't like is never having any peace. So as a foster parent, they live with you. I mean, they're there at summer holidays, at Christmas. They're there 100% of the time. And I am an extreme introvert. So as I get my energy back being by myself, well, I am never really ever by myself unless, God bless them, they're all at school. And so I thought, well... Whew, you know and maybe there's more that I can do to help more children than just the few that have gone through my house but all of that is up in the air it's all up to god we trust him fully um but as of right now our plans are to close when these kids leave us
0: you know the great thing about being a casa is that you you don't take the child home in fact th- right. that that's that is the rule um yeah. they are they at least in California it's very very strict. They, you do not bring them home. You do not you not you don't get involved with their with the with their, your family. It's you really do separate it, and it also because of that it allows I think the casa to do a better job because it allows for a certain objectivity. Yes, um, and, I can see that. But we we also have a program here. For CASAs, when, say if a case closes and you're not quite ready to take another case, we have what's called Essential History. And it's a new program that started, which is, as you can imagine, really valuable because you essentially, you gather all the information about a child and organize it so that whoever does end up taking the case has a really complete overview of what has happened to that kid as as you know especially say with with your mom that was was that was jumping all the counties it sometimes it's so hard just to get the correct information about what's happening to a kid where they are what what medications they're on what's happened at school and also very often the caseworkers reports are flat out wrong i remember For my case, I sat down at a table with three stacks of court records, three feet high, and I'd say three quarters of that information turned out to be wrong. And it was only because I sorted through it and then talked to everybody involved that I actually was able to figure out, okay, this is what happened to her. Right. This is that person's name. This is the school she was in, all that stuff. And um, I think it's a really important role that they have now developed here. Uh, it must have a more official name than essential history, but it's something like that. I can send you that information because it's I think it's really, really valuable.
1: Yeah, I think I'm technically the foster mom and the casa on this case. There is no casa assigned to these children here. They should have a casa. And every time we have um, court, the judge, the very first hearing, he, uh, I asked if I could testify, and I went. I mean, they had said all this random stuff, and half of it was incorrect. And I, I said, can I? And I just very succinctly told the history. Told. Everything that the judge had asked, you know, I had dates, I had times, I had people, I had everything. And now every single court here we've ever had since, I'm the first one that he calls to testify. Uh, Ms. Rathbone, you know, tell us, you know, whatever. Yeah, because he... Because yeah, cause... I think that it's essential to have that information, the right information, and to, you know, present it on behalf of the children. So I enjoy that aspect of it, but we so rarely go to court. We haven't been in court since November for this case, so it's... It's not so frequent.
0: Yeah, here it's every three months. There's usually some kind of a check-in. Um, it's yeah. it, it goes on a three, six, and nine month period, depending right. on what's happening with the with, with the placement and with the yeah. and, and with the case as well. Um, and then also COVID threw all everything off. You know, made everything right. a mess, and and the courts are backed up, and and of course there's now. M- many, many, many more kids in care because of because of COVID as well. I'm sure that's true that's right. in Georgia too, right? That's right. So how do you feel about the work that you've done?
1: Well, um, when I look back at the work I did out in Seattle, I got a lot of recognition. I got a lot of pats on the back. I got a lot of money. <laughs> but I could literally summarize all of my work on a one sentence in a ruled line sheet of paper. It just, to me, wasn't very significant or life-changing. But the work I've done with fostering is on a completely different level. I got no real uh, accolades. Certainly, we get no money. We get no real praise, although people will say you've done a great job and, you know, oh, you're changing these kids' lives and people that don't really get it. But by far, I will look back on it and say it was one of the great achievements of my life. No question, Uh, because I think God will make it so that they remember at least half the things that we tried to teach them. I think it will have an impact. I really do. I I believe it in my heart of hearts that these kids, they may follow down the paths of their parents still, but I think that they will remember a time where they felt safe. They felt loved. They were taken to church. They learned about their Creator. They learned that it matters what... We believe on certain things. It matters where they're going to end up when they die. It matters, you know, what they're going to be and, and, and what path they're going to follow. I hope we taught them that, and I think it will be uh, impactful. I won't regret it, but going through it, you just have to kind of hold on and take it a day at a time.
0: So I want to ask you this one last thing that I ask all my guests, and uh, if you can, if you can dig deep for it, what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you, unless you told them?
1: <laughs> um, I love adventures. Whether it's um, the time that I was on a train backpacking through. Uh, Europe and I was on a train in Italy and got drugged and robbed or whether it was <laughs> wow. the time I read pure I, I rode these purebred Arabian stallions uh, around the pyramids uh, racing a sheik that was there or <laughs> whether it was the time I whitewater rafted down the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. These are things I love to do. I love adventures and going on and experiencing things and I hope that one day, you know, I will look back at fostering and say that was a great adventure right but my advice to everyone is you know go and experience adventures whatever will take you out of your comfort zone and something that you think you have a little bit of fear and trepidation in doing just go and do it because adventures are great whether it be traveling or experiencing something you've never done or doing something that you know in your heart of hearts you should do but maybe you're a bit fearful just go for it and and do it. That's wonderful
0: advice, and it, I wish that our listeners could see you because I would never have guessed that about you. You seem, yes. you know, in fact, you already said that you're actually an introvert, and you mm. seem uh, very—I uh, don't want to say demure, but very, uh, <laughs> you know, contained and old. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just just sweet, and that's and how I feel. No, old. no, no, sweet and contained, and so <laughs> soft-spoken, but but actually you're you're an adventurer,
1: <laughs> yeah, I love adventures, I love adventures, and this was a great adventure, and I have loved a lot of precious children, and they have loved me. The blessing that these kids have been on my life has been amazing, but not all the kids, some of the kids we had were so hard, yeah i mean one one boy I had said his greatest dream was to come back, take my daughter in. Her, his bedroom, stab her with a knife and killer. And he just said it just like that, without any laughter, without any anything, just kept eating his sinner. And I thought, whoa. Wow. <laughs> okay, Lord. Um, you know, we've had kids that have peed on the floor and that have destroyed everything we've given them within 10 seconds, that, you know, have smeared poop all over the walls. But we've had children that have loved on us and told us how grateful they are for us and. Even these four kids, when they were told at school, you will not be going home today, you are reentering the foster care system, their first question was, where are we going? And they said, you're going to Miss Mary's. And the director of defects that was there to pick them up said they started jumping up and down and they were so excited to come to our house. And she broke down and cried as she told me. She said, in the 20 plus years of me doing this, I have never seen kids more excited to enter the foster care system. And so that's something to me.
0: Oh, you know? yes, it is something. Yeah. You've, cha- you've changed their lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I so. think that's for sure. You know, one of the potentially great things about fostering is that you can break generational foster care, just by role modeling, by caring for the kids, by creating consistency, by, by
1: showing up for them, they see a way out. Yeah, we stress beyond all things, a relationship with their Savior and education. You know, because they've got to have something that will heal their hearts, and they've got to have something that will stretch their minds and get them into college and get them the best possible jobs they can get. Those are the two things that we stress above all else. So,
0: Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. And thank Thank you for for your work, really.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you for your work.
2: Thank you, Mary, for sharing your story and your honesty. I think what we get most from this is that education is such an enormous key in breaking generational foster care. We've heard this over and over again. So any of you out there in the foster care system, Get the education you need to change the pattern. Thank you, Mary. Our next guest is Jordan Bartlett, who's the co-founder and the director of Doing Good Works, whose motto is, be kind, love more, do good. Doing Good Works is a certified B Corporation that provides resources and opportunities for young people aging out of foster care. Jordan was adopted at birth, but was then found by his biological sister when he was in college and came to realize that her life in foster care was so very different and much more difficult than his happy childhood and successful adoption, he knew he wanted to make a difference and help support kids in care. And he's doing that now. He's also a CASA, which is so great because CASA needs more men. You hear that, guys? Just call the CASA in your area and check it out. Be kind. Love more. Do good. See you next week, and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something you might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to gal.org and in LA, casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Apostol. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.